0: for being with us today at the um, International Career Panel and today's version is going to be uh, focusing on international law and we have a very exciting panel of um, women here for you today. On behalf of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, let me also thank uh, our program partners who are participating today. Uh, Those include Belmont University uh, for their Center for International Business, Lipscomb University Department of History, Politics and Philosophy, uh, Tennessee Technology University, uh, Department of Foreign Languages and Middle Tennessee State University. Um, Thank you for those uh, sponsors as well as the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce International Business Council. Um, Let me remind you to register um, for Thursday's uh, career panel. Uh, We'll be talking with Foreign Service Officer, Alan DeBoe, diplomat in residence about joining the Foreign Service and working as an American diplomat abroad um, or at the State State Department generally. Um, That is Thursday, 5.30 p.m. Central Time. Um, Lastly, our panelists are very anxious to answer your questions. So please make sure to start adding them to the Q&A Um, icon at the bottom of your zoom screen and not in the chat box. So you can still use the chat box for um, other perhaps just comments. Um, But if you want to have a direct question that will be posed during the Q&A part of the event, then we ask that you use the Q&A feature. All right. As I'd mentioned previously, we are so excited to be having this event here today. Um, We are honored to have a very esteemed group of women from across the globe uh, who have taken time out of their days, um, evenings really, to be speaking with us about uh, what it is like to be um, an international lawyer, a lawyer in international law. Um, How the event is gonna be structured. I'm going to begin Uh, by briefly introducing our four panelists. um, And they're joining us from all over the world, right, from London and France and Georgia, of course, the country, not the state. Um, And after I introduce them very briefly, we're going to pivot to a one hour moderated session, and then I'm going to open the floor and refer to those questions that were posed in Q&A. Again, you can pose those questions as the conversation develops um, organically in that first hour, or you can pose them um, afterward. Um, I also want to note that when you are doing those questions, when you're asking those questions, you can direct them to one panelist in particular, say one individual poses a particular comment or makes something that you want uh, clarification on, you have further follow up, you may do that, or you can say my question is for all of the panelists generally, Uh, both uh, ways of doing that is perfectly appropriate. Um, So uh, without further ado, uh, let me go ahead and I'll introduce myself very briefly. Uh, My name is Professor Susan Haynes. I am a professor of political science here at Lipscomb University uh, specializing in international affairs and international law. I'm also a board member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council which is a 501c3 uh, nonprofit nonpartisan organization here in uh, middle Tennessee associated with um, the wider World Affairs Council of America and our mission is to uh, increase knowledge about global affairs Uh, among all constituencies, among high school students, college students, graduate students and beyond. Um, We just want to get people excited about international affairs and knowledgeable about that. And um, this event stems from that passion and that pursuit. so that's that's me in a nutshell and why I'm here. But I want to go ahead and give very brief, um, just basically the name, where they're from, and uh, the positions of our panelists. But please note, they are all incredibly um, experienced professionals with an array of experience. And I would really love if everyone could go to the Tennessee World Affairs Council website, the event page, and read their full bios, because they're absolutely worth reading. Um, So um, in terms of our lineup today, um, we first have Iwana Bada-Bushila, who is an international lawyer in Strasbourg, France. Uh, She's, I believe, six hours ahead of us currently, um, who recently finished a mission with the European Court of Human Rights. Um, We have Claudia Bado-Wilmo, who uh, is currently, I believe, in London, uh, about five hours ahead. We have Tina um, who is coming to us from Georgia, nine hours ahead, I believe, an international lawyer who served as the first deputy minister of justice of Georgia from 2007 to 2012. And we have Vicky Praise, who is coming to us also from London and is an independent human rights consultant. Um, so, thank you, ladies, very much for joining us, uh, which I believe for all of you is this evening. Um, so, I sent all of our panelists a series of questions just to get to know them better and their experiences better and to try to figure out where there are commonalities and distinctions. Um, And today's questions are going to be based upon those responses, right? Um, One of the things that was mentioned throughout the preliminary responses is that there's no traditional career path in international law. Uh, And because of this, the best thing that we can do for anyone who is interested in international law is to try to highlight those individuals, women, who have achieved um, success in this field and to try to gain insight from your own experiences. So to my audience members, um, your own path is going to look very different, more than likely, than uh, the path that is discussed on this screen. We're going to show you four different experiences, four different professions, four different lives, right? That have taken different um, routes. But perhaps the hope is that in hearing their experiences, you can um, find guideposts for your own journey. That's that's as much as we can give you, right? Um, in this in this wild terrain that is international law. Um, so let's go ahead and begin um, the moderated portion. And I'll kind of begin with my first question. Um, so in viewing the online bios, which again, I encourage our audience to look at online, um, one, of the thing that, one of the things that jump out um, for a student might be um, that outside of the United States, which, which all of you guys are outside of the United States, uh, one can earn an undergraduate degree in law. Then, as all of you all did, you could go on for a master's degree uh, specializing in a particular area of law, right? So I'm curious, what influenced your decision specifically to pursue law? Um, Because you did so at a, a fairly early age, right, as an undergraduate. And then what prompted you to look at international law specifically, Uh, Tina, I know you made the choice to study international law uh, specifically at the undergraduate level, which is slightly unusual. So I'll go ahead and start uh, with with you.
1: Um, Hello, everyone. Um, Susan, thank you very much for giving this opportunity to participate in this um, uh, webinar with excellent um, international legal professionals from different parts of the world. Um, Yes, you are right. I, uh, I, decided to pursue international career in international law when i uh, was in high school um, and had to make a decision about my profession Um, and uh, it was a bit i mean this decision was uh, kind of uh, influenced by several factors including uh, the fact that i was born um, in soviet union or soviet georgia um, and uh, myself and my family members and everybody, almost everybody around me, had this um, very strong desire and uh, determination to see the world outside uh, the um, Soviet sphere of influence. Um, And um, uh, I I was watching um, every TV program possible and available um, to know what London looked like, for instance. And um, many years after that, when I first went to London, I realized that I knew a lot about (laughs) districts and and the parts of the city and um, the landmarks and everything else from my um, TV time when I was uh, still like, I don't know, eight, nine years old. Um, So that this was a factor. I I wanted to know more about the world. Um, um, I, went to school uh, specialized in math and science um, and uh, physics was my passion um, for many years but again the, 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 the situation I was in like my country was just after the civil war when I um, went to um, uh, university I, I had to be smart in choosing the profession and science definitely was not um, a possibility. So um, I, I decided to um, become a lawyer but um, uh, the only thing I could do was, um, was to choose the part of law that I, I loved a lot and this was like international and that would allow me to um, explore um, the world. Um, and for unknown reasons, <laughs> I, I don't know why, but the, um, uh, the top universities in Georgia did have the specialized faculty, like in the law schools, there was a faculty called international law um, and international relations. So I, I chose international law and got the specialization and qualification of lawyer. Um, so I, I studied for five years uh, there, um, but during these years I did a few um, exchange programs um, in UK, in the US, um, in um, in other countries like um, short term, couple weeks or semester or a year at uh, the longest. Um, so it's it's different factors that's really influenced my decision and I, i'm happy that i made this decision um and i've never regretted i i enjoyed a lot i've enjoyed every bit of it and um despite the fact that i was 16 17 years old um i was lucky that the decision was the the right one
0: thank you tina um i'll i'll repeat the question uh for the rest of you if you would like to weigh in uh it's just What influenced you to pursue law, initially, and then international law, specifically?
2: I'll take a go if you'll have me. Um, Hi, everyone. Um, I must confess, my motives were not as pure as Tina in choosing to um, uh, choose law, basically. When I was finishing school, actually, the subjects that I enjoyed the most were history and art history. But then when I sat down and I made my list of, okay, what am I gonna choose for university next year? I realized, obviously, coming off from high school, oh, no, I don't want to be a teacher. If I study history, I'll have to be a teacher. No, I don't want to do that. Um, (laughs) So coming from a family of lawyers, actually, that got me thinking. And I realized what my mother was doing, for instance, going to court every day, coming home and explaining, oh, the judge did this, but the client said that. And I saved it this way. There was something very strategic about the practice of law that I thought first that I might be good at, so I could potentially earn a living at it. And the second one that seemed quite fascinating. However, I must confess, when I first started my first year of law school, this is not gonna be a popular opinion or maybe too popular, but it was miserable. And that is because I did not have international law in my first year in law school. And so actually my first year, I was just wondering, have I chosen right? Have I chosen wrong? I'm doing administrative law. I'm falling asleep with my textbook. Um, But my parents were like, just just wait for a moment, give it a go, take take a second shot at it during your second year. And that's actually when I found public international law. And I was blessed with an incredibly passionate and patient teacher that just opened a whole new world for me and from then on I I just I just knew this is what I like this is what I want to do. Excellent
0: thank you. Um, I'll also weigh in as well and actually
3: Claudia's story is very similar to mine I also came from a family of lawyers too which I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing Um, and so I heard lots of sort of stories my father was an advocate going to court and things so And I'd always thought that law was a very good discipline and it gave you a very good suite of skills that you could kind of transfer if you wanted. And then similar as well, I really did not enjoy my law degree for the first, I think, two years, studying trusts and equity and land law. I kind of just wanted to to cry with that. And it was only actually, I think in my third year, when I started doing international law, civil liberties, that it actually spoke to me and resonated with me um, to the degree that like my colleagues on the panel, that I went and got a master's degree in human rights and civil liberties. Um, and that's really what my calling was. Plus doing um, a volunteering stint as a student in a prison crash um, really sort of, sort of crystallized to me that this was the kind of work that I wanted to do. And actually that remains a theme through my, through my work. So um, yeah, not a, not a similar, dissimilar sort of path from, from Claudius.
4: Hello everyone. Um, I will share also my experience, because uh, it's a little bit different, and um, I think uh, our audience is interested also in uh, exceptions. I didn't want to go uh, study law. (laughs) Actually, I wanted to study political science. And uh, when you um, start, when you want to study political science in France, uh, one need to um, uh, uh, to go to study either law or or human sciences for two years. Uh, here, I relate to <laughs> what Claudia was uh, telling, that uh, when looking to history, I was, no, 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 <laughs> I cannot uh, be a teacher all my life. Uh, although I like to share my experience and to, um, to exchange knowledge and to, to brainstorm, but this, is, this was not the type of uh, profession I imagined for all my life. Uh, So, uh, I took law, but it was like, uh, you know, I had, I was not comfortable with my decision. I was, uh, I took law just because I didn't want to go to study history, and uh, I started to make uh, research to see what can I do, what are the requirements in, in order to be able to get in a political science institute. And this is how I discover international uh, lawyer uh, master and um, all this uh, international world. Uh, I I think I I had a I had some <laughs> some luck somewhere because uh, I don't know if um, in your countries uh, happens the same, but in France you. Uh, start your first uh, year of uh, undergraduate without any exam and you are able to move from one domain to another or to just give up and there are a lot of students that are giving up just because they don't like uh, what's uh, what they choose like just like claudia said uh, it was miserable the first year it was uh, hard, it was a totally different way of learning (laughs) Uh, so um, but hopefully uh, we had counselors, coach, uh, career counselors and coaches uh, in the university and I I was (laughs) lucky enough to discover something that interests me in the first place.
0: Thank you. Um, Well, you've given me a nice kind of segue in your discussion in regards to um, kind of the different type of areas within school. Now I want to kind of catapult to the different areas in practice. Um, So I know that international law is a very multifaceted uh, field, and one can work in a variety of different areas. So it sounds like many of you, Came to the realization international laws is was the area for you um, later on in law school perhaps i mean uh tina being the exception there at the very beginning but coming to um the realization yes i want to do international law um but then there's that other decision of okay where do i work within this field um and claudia in your question response i know that you worked in a lot of these areas. You worked in in government and and with a university and also are now with a private firm. Um, So I posed the question to everyone that after you decided that you wanted to work in international law, how did you decide, um, how did you narrow down where to work? And Claudia, I'm going to start with you since you've kind of worked in in many different areas.
2: Certainly happy to. Um, Short answer, trial and error. So basically i was doing an exchange year actually at the university of california berkeley and i was about to finish my undergraduate degree and so i had a bit of an existential crisis thinking what next i know what i like but where do i want to practice it and so something that has served me very well during the years is just to try things and at that point in time i decided i want to try working at an embassy I'm a Spanish na- national, so I just emailed, I think, every single Spanish embassy in Europe, asking, hi, my name is Claudia, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Would you would you have me as an intern for a few months so I can see the work that you do at the embassy? And surprisingly, I got some positive responses, so I moved to Luxembourg for three four months at the end of my undergraduate degree, and I worked there at the embassy for a number of months. Um, While they treated me incredibly well, I must confess, I was a bit, not disappointed, but I expected something completely different in the sense that I've also always very enjoyed a fast pace, and diplomacy is certainly not very fast pace when compared to other areas of international law. So I I honestly didn't think it was a good fit, especially because one of the things I enjoy the most is the oral advocacy part of the job, and there it's mostly jumping from meeting to meeting and speech to speech, but not really pleading, which is what I thought um, might be my strongest point and something that I enjoy. Um, So after that, I decided to do my master's in public international law at the LSE. And um, going back to that wonderful teacher I told you about earlier, he got in touch actually when I was just finishing my LLM and he um, offered me a position as a lecturer at my previous alma mater. And so I went back to Barcelona. I taught public international law, international human rights law, law of international organizations and international criminal law for a year. And I actually discovered that after all, I do enjoy being a teacher, very much so. (laughs) However, the issue there became that um, I realized I couldn't really provide my students with a practical perspective of what I was teaching them. And as you all know by now, probably, international law is one thing in theory and it's something else altogether in practice. And so I thought, I'm teaching them something they can learn from a textbook, I should just go practice in international law, and then when I actually have an actual proper idea of how this all works in real life, maybe then um, I'll come back to to academia in this sense. And this decision was actually further reinforced because I was also working part-time at a small um, Spanish firm doing completely unrelated banking litigation. Um, (laughs) But then it actually showed me, okay, I really, really enjoy international law and I really, really enjoy being a practitioner in law, an advocate. And so the goal then was to how can I mix both of them? And that's actually what led me to apply to a number of firms, first in London, then in Geneva, now back in London, uh, in private practice, um, where I have been ever since doing mostly public international law and investment treaty arbitration.
0: Thank you. Um, for my other panelists, um, what shaped your decision to, to go into the area uh, or where you are currently in the international law?
1: Um, I liked public international law from the very beginning. Um, this is a um, field of international law that regulates the relationship between states and Um, uh, I liked it uh, most. Um, uh, And after that, I was interested in human rights. Um, So, but when I graduated from the law school, I did not really have um, opportunity to practice public international law. First of all, um, I think as a matter of fact, it's very difficult to find a place in public international law, very few people Um, manage to build a career there. You have to be not only very good and hardworking, but also very lucky. Uh, It's a very small group of people who do typical public international law work. Um, So this this was not an option. So I satisfied my passion for international law in um, Jessup Moot Court Competition. If you don't know about Jessup, I think it's time to, <laughs> to learn about it. Um, it, help, it will help you, it helped me and a lot of others to uh, learn um, uh, international law, different um, aspects of it and also to um, imitate the litigation. Um, so um, litigation international courts of justice. Um, so it, that's what I did, and then I joined um, I joined a um, uh, British NGO, Women Aid International. Uh, that worked on Caucasus uh, like Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia. Um, and I had this like less than one year um, to work with them um, and um, at the same time, I applied to um, masters, LLM programs um, and funding for that. Um, so, um, and then things have changed in my own country, Georgia, and, uh, uh, it was possible to work for the government because working for the government was not considered as, um, being, um, a corrupt public official, uh, but quite contrary. Uh, so basically the, the new government led by very young, um, reformers, uh, found us like um, people who studied abroad. Uh, It's, I mean, Georgia is a small country. We, we, it has a population of less than 4 million. Of course, there were not many young Georgians studying abroad. And first of all, not many people could afford that. Um, And um, second, the programs funded by US government or UK government or, or European Union were well known. Um, so this new group of people in, in politics went to the donors and said like okay can you please tell us who are these Georgians who study abroad are like are doing masters and this is how we were found basically and invited and encouraged to work for the public sector and I, I was appointed as head of the unit at the Ministry of Justice responsible for state representation to the European course of human rights it's, it's it was a huge responsibility for me, but I had a very clear instruction from the minister that the goal was not winning cases in the European Court of Human Rights, but understanding the requirements and bringing the national legislation and practice in line with the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, So we did lose a lot of cases um, uh, in Strasbourg um, uh, or settled them because we knew that the law needed to be um, changed or the practice needed to be improved. Um, Then I went to the U.S. I I received the funding, uh, the scholarship from the State Department, the the Maskey, uh, Edmund Maskey scholarship, and I went to um, to the American University of Washington College of Law um, in DC to do my LLM. And DC environment also really helped me or, or strengthened my, my, my love and passion uh, for public international law and human rights um, law. Um, and then I, I also um, did my internship at the World Crime Research Office um, uh, and studied, international criminal law. I came back to Georgia um, after um, after um, almost two years in the U.S., which covered my LLM and um, working in a law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, <laughs> so um, when I came back to Georgia, um, I knew what was um, uh, for, available for me there. I, I definitely had lots of opportunities to Focus on human rights um, and um, international law, public international law in general. So then, um, of course, the the situation was. Different, and we did have cases in the European Court of Human Rights that we had to win, <laughs> um, included I- including interstate um, cases against the Russian Federation and I was responsible for the whole process uh, from drafting the preparing the application um, to, uh, to the end through so, like litigation hearings at the courts. Um, and at the same time, unfortunately, um, we, we faced war and military aggression and we filed um, case at the International Court of Justice against Russia um, under the um, International Covenant um, against, uh, on the Elimination of Forms of Racial Discrimination, the third convention. The um, first time we, I mean, we had to be creative and find a way to go to the ICJ um, and, and uh, um, uh, uh, somehow um, uh, bring Russia to the court and make a declaration that we wanted to resolve the disputes through legal means. Um, so that's, that's luck um, that's, that hap- happened to me. Um, uh, I loved international law always. I worked very, very hard, um, but at the same time, um, there are a lot of people who do the same, but do not really have opportunity to practice international law and appear um, in front of the um, international courts. So uh, like Claudia mentioned, I also had to Um, I had opportunity to handle the um, investment arbitration cases on behalf of the government. So when I retired from the government, then I continued uh, practicing international law. I continued uh, litigation in in the uh, European Court of Human Rights, but at the same time, I, I tried to uh, work and I did work for the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative in, um, in the Middle East and North Africa, where I focused on um, legal reforms and judicial reforms and bringing best international um, practice and standards to, to those countries. Um, so that's um, again a lot of factors geopolitical <laughs> that influenced uh, my preferences and uh, my, my career path.
0: Thank you so much, Tina. And Iwana, do you want to respond to uh, what shaped your uh, interest in the area that you're currently in, in international law?
4: Of course. Thank you. Um, In my case, actually, uh, I always had a plan. Uh, I wanted to work uh, in the international environment, but I wasn't sure if uh, private or public uh, area would fit me better. Uh, therefore, I tried both of them, <laughs> I uh, switched from uh, public uh, sector to, to company multinational companies, and in the end uh, I tried. Mm, you cannot know what type of experience fits your profile uh, until you try it, um, you n- must uh, look uh, make a deep introspection and search for your strengths and try to um, see what are the opportunities that come around and uh, jump in. <laughs> um, it's important, I think, to have a plan, uh, a general plan uh, to always be uh, focused on, uh, on your goals, uh, general goals, but uh, in the same time, to, to be flexible and to um, see the potential when a situation arrives or, or an, a professional opportunity arrives. Uh, I uh, had a few situations during my, my career where I wasn't able to, to find uh, a job uh, that fits perfectly into my professional project. Uh, nevertheless, I took it because uh, I didn't want it to spend too much time uh, doing nothing or just being alone. It's, it's very important to be uh, in a community and to be in touch with people in this kind of environment. Therefore, I prefer, even though uh, it was totally out of my uh, um, my scope and uh, objective like uh, my first uh, experience in Romania with the Mediation Council it was a private uh, it was um, a very young uh, institution that was created by the state in order to implement a mediation uh, profession in Romania and uh, I only did uh, administrative law mainly and litigation but in administrative uh, law it was really not my thing and after many years, I discovered how much that experience helped me and um, uh, empowered me and how can we can switch um, or we can um, use different uh, competencies that we uh, earn in a specific environment in a totally different world. So um, in my case, as I said, I, I wasn't sure about it. Now I know. <laughs> After uh, almost uh, 13 years of experience, I am a public uh, <laughs> international lawyer. Um, it fits my um, values, my uh, objectives, uh, and uh, mm, I, yes, I, I, I think I will stay in this, <laughs> in this area for the next uh, mission. <laughs> Thank you. you wanna, uh, Vicky, do you want to add
0: anything? and I, I think the first thing I'll
3: say is I'm the complete opposite to my owner I had no plan and I just went where my feet took me and where the opportunities lay and I think for me it was very much luck timing and uh, uh, you know just as I say not having a plan but I think for me it was more sort of thematically where my career sort of drove me as I mentioned before there um, working in a prison question as a student sort of set me off on the kind of path that I am now. So that's always been a bit of a theme through my work, people deprived of liberty, dignity behind bars. So I don't say that that's necessarily driven me to the organisations that I've worked for, but it's always been a sort of um, in the background somewhere there. But um, I, I kind of cut my teeth in a small NGO um, in Geneva before I did my master's. Um, and then from there sort of continued as an immigration and asylum lawyer for six and a half years. Um, and just I've just been very lucky, you know, the opportunities have come my way and I've just not said no to anything, which also means I've had aberrations in my career, so I was working on procurement in the Council of Europe, which was completely kind of out of my sort of comfort zone in terms of, of the, the work um, as a human rights lawyer, but um, it gave me a bit more, you know, business acumen and things like that, and then kind of found my way back again into, into the human rights world, um, and then worked in academia and with our British Foreign Office here. So um, I I think that's kind of where my journey and path has been. And and I sort of, if I offer any advice is, you know, just, I think, take every opportunity that comes your way because you never know where it will lead you, who it will kind of, who you will meet through it, what contacts you will make and what experience you will get from it. So so that's been my sort of journey.
0: Thank you so much, Vicki. And I'm actually going to start with you with this next question. Um, but all of you have mentioned, and Claudia, in particular talking about trial and error, and I want you built upon that about, well how do you how do you do this trial um, thing, right? Um, so in terms of how do you go about um, trial and error, uh, often people mention the importance of internships. Uh, but I want to go just a little bit deeper to um, ask you particularly, Vicki, when we were talking um, preliminarily before this in regards to um, the question responses, you mentioned Uh, your advice was don't just focus on something like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, those really large organizations, but perhaps uh, focus your attempts on smaller organizations. Um, So I wanna start and and ask you, what are some smaller organizations that might offer internships? And I know you said there might be so many that you can't even mention them. Um, So we might be able to put some of those in the chat box and some for later, Um, but just for those who might be taking notes, uh, I'll start with you. What are some recommendations in that regard?
3: Yeah, I mean, so sort of my, my feeling about that is, you know, go where you can add value, go where you can kind of add to the conversation and lend your skills and expertise, because it's, it's very much a two-way relationship, the internship. Um, not only are you giving to the organization, but you want to get sort of skills, contacts, um, networks, especially back from that. So that's why I say go where you can be a real piece in the jigsaw puzzle in terms of that organization. Um, and, and you might just be a small cog in a big wheel if you go to the to the very big names, but you've set me a challenge because I went off and had a look at some organisations to see if I could find any um, that were currently recruiting. And, and um, so for example, I found a, a small um, asylum charity, uh, I think what they called Asylus, and they were looking or are currently looking for volunteer researchers who can help to give some information about country of origin information um, in relation to asylum appeals. So you know there are very small organizations which are, are looking for that um intern support. But I do add one caveat and it's this that interns really should be paid for their work, valued for their work, remun- remunerated. And it's a conversation, I think my colleagues will probably agree that it's a conversation that we're having and we're starting to have about that whole piece around interns because you know the work they do is, is as valuable as, as a as staffer So um So yeah, there's a lot of value in in being an intern, but in a way that is meaningful for that person. So I think I'll probably leave it that.
0: Thank you. Um, Let's see, Claudia, do you have anything to add in regards to uh, recommendations for, I mean, it could be large or smaller organizations uh, that might be providing internships or good places to look?
2: I would actually say take a look at United Nations volunteers. So it's, It's basically a United Nations system that was created not that long ago, and they're looking for people to volunteer in pretty much every corner of the world. Um, And depending on what you're interested in, for example, let's say um, studies on gender-based violence or issues of humanitarian law or community outreach, there's pretty much um, a lot for everybody. The only potential drawback of that is that sometimes they do require prior work experience. But there are also positions that are available, um, even if you don't have a law degree or if you don't have any any previous experience. It's it's not going to be maybe as as challenging as some other positions. But I would certainly say it's a it's a good resource to take a look at if you just want to get started. Thank you. And they pay.
0: <laughs> very important, right? especially for those who are considering traveling. I think that uh, the payment option can be absolutely a barrier to that. Um, uh, Tina, do you have anything to offer in regards to recommendations for internships? Yeah, um,
1: so as, as Vicky mentioned, I think it's very, very important to find a place where you can really contribute, they need you very much more than probably larger organizations. Um, Another aspect is that wherever you go, if you have this um, knowledge and uh, love of um, international law, you can bring this and you can show others what's the added value of using um, international law in their work. It's not um, always so obvious Um, um, and, uh, Uh, especially lawyers or um, organizations um, working on legal uh, matters rely a lot on domestic systems and sometimes they don't even look at what international uh, mechanisms are available for them. So when you have this knowledge and understanding and bring it there, it's, it's, it's helpful and it's appreciated most times um uh also i just like in i mean I, I because the audience is in the us i know that now some of um organizations are um announcing the internships like um uh ifes international foundation of elect election systems, um, as well as I saw International Republican Institute, NDI has the National Democratic Institute, regular on a regular basis, the the internships now I know that some of them are having virtual internships because of of the pandemic. Um, American Bar Association rule of law initiative has regular internships. uh, for law students in particular, but the other organizations that I mentioned that you don't have to have a law degree or be a law student, you still have opportunity to do international work. And it's, um, it, it, at least it will help you understand and determine and decide whether this is what you want to do in, in, in the future or that's probably not your thing um so yeah that's uh that's some of the big names and i will share in the chat some other links that i <laughs> um uh, I, I i i searched for
0: thank you so much um Oana, do you have anything okay. to- yeah,
4: Susan. Sorry, I just wanted to um, mention that uh, international organizations usually have specific periods where you can apply for internships, so we, one should pay attention to the timelines because, uh, for instance, in order to um, get an internship in uh, September, you need to apply in March. So this, is, uh, this could uh, be a tricky Aspect uh, if we don't know about it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, Well, I know in your responses to the questions, we had, um, there were a lot of recommendations in regards to um, advice that you might provide to those who are currently either in law school or um, currently undergraduates, you know, in the United States where we. do our undergraduate education prior to uh, law school. Uh, So I want to ask, in addition to internships, uh, in addition to education, what are other ways that students can set themselves apart and set themselves up for success uh, in this particular area? And I want to, I'll just go ahead and start with you um, with this question.
4: Yes, I think it's, thank you for this question. I think it's a, a very good question because um, usually I realize that what differentiates one from another is uh, the passion, um, the empowerment, uh, and uh, the strengths. Um, when you uh, do it with passion, when you are uh, um, a trigger, but what you are doing um, you can see it. It's it's so obvious that uh, everyone can see it. So first of all, I would say um, analyze a little bit um, your skills, uh, your soft skills, uh, and your then your competencies. Look. Uh, on how you are drafting, uh, if you like public speaking, um, I don't know, um, do you like uh, interacting with other people? Take a look to what exactly uh, triggers you and then move to the competencies and try to uh, find uh, the profession in the legal um, domain that fits best to your uh, profile. Uh, in addition, what worked in my case was that uh, I, um, uh, I keep studying and I keep uh, um, acquiring new skills. Uh, I got certified as an interpreter uh, when I was young because I love studying languages and uh, cultures. And this is something that now I'm using all day, every day in my work. Uh, I got certified as a mediator because I uh, am a proponent of dialogue and settlement and I, uh, I think that we, we can always find uh, a solution that fits everyone. So uh, and soft, uh, soft skills that um, were, uh, um, how can I say that were important to me became um, competencies. And um, I realized that in my work, uh, this kind of uh, approach uh, worked <laughs> actually. And yes, if I could add, add another thing, um, you need to also to, to look like for the, uh, the internship in areas where Uh, not everyone would would go, and then to take that experience to the next level, um, it it might help.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Um, Tina, what are your suggestions in regards to other ways that people might be able to set themselves apart?
1: Yeah, I mentioned Jessup. (laughs) That's, I think, I mean, for me, this was... um, uh, very, very helpful. And I, I, I am a friend of Jessup, which is an official status, <laughs> um, and I, um, I participated in Jessup when I was in my second year in law school. Um, uh, and uh, uh, this is uh, like Philip Jessup International Law Moot Court Competition. Um, and the university students, um, law school students, can participate in this competition. And the international rounds, first of all, there are uh, um, national rounds, and then we have regional rounds and international rounds are held in D.C. Except for last year and this year, because of pandemic, it's like an Olympics for for um, for us who love international law. Um, And we, um, so you can participate, you learn a lot about international law, practical skills as well, how to prepare the case and how to litigate. Um, uh, And also, I mean, Jessup is a big one, but there are other international moot court competitions um, as well. Um, human rights ones, like um, in international uh, humanitarian law, Jean Pictet, is also very good. Um, We have Telders, that is also in international, uh, public international law. Again, I will share the names in the chat box so you can find them easily. So these are for students, and law school years um, and law school resources can be used very well to um, participate in those competitions as a group, as a team uh, from your university. Um, and uh, you will learn a lot, but also you will meet um, others from different countries um, and networking is extremely helpful in international career in general and including in international law. Um, so I would really encourage students uh, to Um, to find information about this um, uh, international competitions and participate uh, in them. You don't have to win and become a champion. I know you will want to, and you will um, achieve this, uh, but participation itself is extremely satisfying, meeting and making new friends um, and feeling yourself to be part of a great community of international lawyers.
0: Thank you, Tina. And Claudia, do you have anything to add in regards to how do, how they can set themselves apart?
2: Uh, I do, but I have to start by saying Jessup. <laughs> and I have to say, Tina, I tell literally everybody who will listen that I am a former UK Jessup champion, so it stays with you. <laughs> uh, but now getting back to the question at hand, I would say... Um, Languages and mooting have been covered. The third one that I would suggest would be initiative. One thing that has served me very, very well in the past is reaching out to people working in the organizations I'm interested in. Because more often than not, if they have the time and if you Basically, put your case forward. Well, you will get an answer back. Maybe agreeing to a fifteen-minute phone call where they can tell you about the organization, the culture, or maybe a little bit more of an insight as to what exactly they're looking for in that position. And then it's it's a thing very welcome for any anyone working in recruitment. If in your cover letter you say, "Oh, I took the initiative to talk to this person," if they're of course um, okay with you sharing that that conversation. Um, and, and it only reaffirmed my commitment to to join you because of this and this and this and that. And I think that's not something that a lot of people do. And I think it's something that's certainly very impressive. And it shows that you're committed actually and that you want that really badly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Contacting all those embassies, that that's initiative, but nobody did that for you. <laughs> so I think that you've shown that. Um, uh, Vicky, what, what advice would you provide?
3: Yeah, so kind of, So going on from what Claudia says around that networking and LinkedIn and reaching out to people and asking for that informational chat. And I think actually now the pandemic has given us that opportunity to reach out to people um, who you would never ordinarily capture because we can't go anywhere. Human rights professionals are on the move all the time and kind of catching 10 minutes of them, you're doing very well. So um, I think there's a real sort of value in that. Um, For me, I think the singular piece of advice is around writing um, and becoming a sort of mini expert in your human rights area, starting to think critically about human rights. And I don't say that you have to start writing a huge tome for the Harvard Law Journal or something like this, that you can just write a small blog piece for your um, university or your school, um, but start to become a bit of a thought leader, a commentator, a thinker on the area of human rights that interests you. It will stand you in good stead when you go for an interview. You can say, "Well, actually, I've written about this issue, and you know, here's what I here's my sort of position on it." So, building and crafting those dev- those writing skills, which go neatly with mooting skills and advocacy skills, your oral advocacy skills. So that I think would be my sort of main piece of advice.
0: Thank you. Um... And before we pivot, I have two more questions that might wrap into one uh, in regards to work-life balance. Um, but I do want, I know um, Pat Ryan is putting this in the chat box, but it seems like a natural fit into this conversation in regards to networking um, and you know seeking all opportunities, right? Seeking all opportunities to connect with uh, potential mentors uh, to hear insights from other individuals. So uh, Pat just put information about the Tennessee World Affairs Council um, in the chat box. And I would encourage our attendees to um, look further into that organization um, and if they feel led to join that organization um, because then you do get to connect to experienced individuals in the uh, area of international affairs and it gives you a very nice platform to, um, to do that networking, right? So you're not reaching out cold, you're reaching out the connections have already been made. Um, Vicki, I also want to elaborate on a point that you made in regards to the present era, uh, or the present time, uh, with all of the complications, um, that, that COVID brings, one of the benefits, um, and I believe someone else mentioned this previously: is that there's these virtual internships that are possible. But also, I there's no way that I would have been able to get this level of expertise on a panel. Um, I don't know if any of you have been to Nashville or if any of you will be. Um, but you know, usually I'm restrained to those who are in the Nashville area, and here we have people all over the globe. So I do want to emphasize, um, you know, the the slight uh, bright side to uh, the current um, situation that we are in and the fact that perhaps this makes it easier if you're a student uh, to reach out to someone and even to have a video call. I don't know how many videos calls I had before COVID and now it, it's most certainly uh, more regular. It's, it's not at all unusual to ask someone to meet in this capacity. Um, so I think that could be to your benefit. Um, All right. One of my uh, last questions concerns um, again work-life balance. Um, When I was discussing, you know, I sent some preliminary questions to you all um, in regards to your day-to-day activities, and many of you guys responded by saying, "Okay, I I do a lot of emails. There's virtual meetings. uh, There's some travel." Um, But one of the common things was, uh, "You've there's always more work to be done." um and your inbox is probably never going to be uh empty uh there's never going to be an end to the day actually so you have to make that end you have to make the call as to when your day ends and when your day starts uh so i want to start by saying how stressful do you find your work um and in what ways do you manage this stress and uh claudia i'll begin with you
2: um i feel like that's a trick question in case my employer is watching um (laughs) International law is a highly competitive field. And with that comes a certain amount of stress because there's limited number of positions and actually one factor that induced me to stay uh, well to go into and stay in private practice is that for me personally i do not manage uncertainty well so i like knowing this is my job this is my contract i know what's going to happen now in a year in two years so for me that's important in order to be able to manage my stress so my first point then would be you need to know what your limits are you need to know what you're comfortable with and um I work in an international law firm, I work with our US offices quite a lot, uh, with our Asia-Pacific offices as well, so from the moment I wake up I just know I'm going to have at least a dozen emails from certain people on this and this and this matter, so as I'm making my coffee, I actually make myself a list every day of priorities. Okay what are the deadlines for the week? What are the deadlines for the month? What what is the most important thing I need need to get done today with all the things that are already scheduled, like calls, catch-ups, events, Uh, but realistically, because if not, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure, so don't be too harsh on yourself. Um, And so for me, for example, what really helps me is I really like clearing my inbox. So anything that takes five minutes or less, I just wake up in the morning, get it done, out the window, someone else's problem for a little bit. So that really helps me prioritize and clearing the inbox. And then my third step is actually take stock of what the task you're being asked to do is because especially in public international law and investment treaty arbitration, there is a wealth of information of, of say, um a memorial on behalf of a state defending an investment treaty arbitration and you're setting out what the, st- the legal standard for, I don't know, fair and equitable treatment is, I can guarantee you, you will not go through every single case that has talked about fair and equitable treatment. So tell yourself, okay, how long do I have for this task? Okay, what's the best I can do in this time frame? This is something, actually, that I need to keep telling our younger associates, because some of them still come from this set of academia, where first you need to review everything, and then you make those conclusions. In this regard, it's like, no, okay, I have three days to put the best case forward for my client on this topic. And then knowing that that's the goal and that's the terms, then you adapt the work accordingly. At least I think that works really well for me in not being overwhelmed by the amount of things just out there in terms of international law. So yeah, those would be my my top tips in that regard. Thank you, Owana. Um, do you want to add to this in
0: regards to how you manage stress?
4: I uh, relate very much to what Claudia was uh, saying. Uh, I'm a very organized person, and I think in this uh, field uh, it's difficult to to be. Um, not to have, uh, like, to-do list and uh, <laughs> um, um, mementos and uh, Outlook uh, reminders <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, what uh, what I can say is that, um, for me, it's very important to have this private aspect of my life um, um And this is why um, maybe this is also the case for other parent other person that want to build a family. Um, when you want to have both career and personal life, you need to take to take some decisions that, of course, would at a certain stage of, your life affect one or another, so um, um, in order to to have them both in my case, um, I I decided I won't work after uh, six o'clock or in the weekends, Um, but uh, this is my personal decision, and as you said earlier, if you don't call up, uh, (laughs) nobody will for you. (laughs) um so this is one thing to put on a stop uh, to to fix, like Claudia said to fix like a, a, a term to deliver um, my uh, my duties and uh, also I think what is important when you have an emergent situation which occurs quite frequently, uh, Usually, when you work with governments and uh, states and uh, international organizations, you you are put in a situation to deal with um, um, urgent uh, interim measures or um, any other uh, request from judges, from high-level officials. And uh, in this situation, first thing uh, I will uh, I, I, I I will make a break. I will say that I always had a very good relationship with my manager. So uh, I am used to go and see with them um, what we, which is the, the plan, the battle plan. Um, so first thing first, I would say talk uh, to your uh, colleague, talk to your uh, manager and um, cool down a little bit. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. <laughs> And then um, yes, take action. Um, but uh, don't don't stay alone in your office uh, and uh, try to figure it out by yourself uh, in case of emergency or stressful situations.
0: Thank you. Um, and Tina, what off, what advice would you offer in regards to managing stress in your position?
1: Uh so. What I'm going to say now is not something um, I'm proud about, Uh, but I I, I will tell you just to see that you don't have to, and actually you should not um, make the mistakes or get used to the lifestyle that um, um, I have. Um, Somehow for various reasons, objective and subjective, um, I have not been really able to uh, manage stress and to structure my workday in, um, uh, in a normal way. So I, I've been in legal career for more than 15 years, and I do not think that I have had 15 days of holiday. Um, I work um, probably 12, 13 hours at least every day. Um, If I'm lucky and I have Sunday off, that's very good. Uh, I work um, six days a week, uh, usually. Um, and um, I have the holidays, like official holidays, not the vacation (laughs) Um, for uh, catching up um, the the, the things that I was not able to finish. Um, uh, I don't know why it's happening that way. Um, For the reasons that, I mean, you will be asked to do as much as you do. So therefore it's important as others mentioned that you control your work, workload. I have not been able to do that ever, uh, whether I work for government or for non-governmental organization. And it's, it's equally, if not more difficult with private clients because they expect you to pick up the phone when they call. And it could be any time of a day or night especially if you work in different time zones, like I, uh, I've been for several years. Uh, when you work for the government, everything is urgent there, always. It's a crisis and you have to react. Um, I, um, I mean, therefore, it's, it has been difficult. What I noticed, though, is that I can do this risk and this workload, handle the workload for a certain period of time. For me, it's about seven, eight years, and then I need to have a break. <laughs> and the break is few months um, um, where I just have to focus on my mental and physical health, um, do things that I um, absolutely enjoy and do not go to work um, every day or somehow like, reduce my workload um, extremely. Uh, it's never like work-free, but I can, I mean, I, I, I know that physically I have to, to, to take a break. So that's not a good thing at all. And um, I, I reached out recently and asked for professional help. How can I manage my workload? How can I say, no, no, I can't do it. And that's okay. So I want you to know that it's okay to say that you cannot take this additional case, or you cannot finish this memo um, today, and you probably need tomorrow or a or, or, or few more days, or you need help. You need more people um, on your team to, to do the work. Um, so it's extremely complicated for me. It, it, um, uh, and I know that it's, uh, it's important. So um, please don't do what I do. Uh, uh, I, I, I've told all this to you because I know that you will find yourselves in the situation when you may feel that, oh, it's, you have no choice. You do have choice um, uh, and you have to be brave enough to make the right choice uh, for yourself. Of course, we are lawyers. We have duty to our clients and we have to do everything we can to support and help. But you need to be healthy and happy to be able to provide the um, legal um, advice or assistance that your client is looking for, irrespective who the client is, private or public entity.
0: Thank you so much, um, Tina. And make, I may I make a note that it is near midnight where you are, I believe, and here we are talking about. Um, balance and workload and you're, and you're, you're talking to us or speaking to us near midnight. So I, my gratitude, my sincere gratitude, and I hope the audience will extend to that as well, that you are taking time, valuable time, uh, to speak with them today. Um, Viggy, I will, uh, go to you next in terms of how you manage stress.
3: Um, I'm going to kind of pick up exactly on what Tina has said immediately, because, um, I I kind of know where you're coming from there, but for me it's around having a good network of people around who you can kind of go to for support. I mean, I work as an independent consultant at the moment, so human rights consultant. So my work is either feast or family, managing through that uncertainty and those moments when it's a bit leaner and then those moments when it's very busy and I've got three or four projects on the go at one time. But what I've done and what I've positively and actively done is kind of built a close network of consultant colleagues and peers around me who I can go to talk to and sort of offload a bit and and, and sort of share that anxiety and stress with a little bit and always get, you know, a a good listening ear back. So that's kind of how I manage that. But um, it is a point that that, that Dina said about the work that we do is very hard and very confronting and how we sort of personally take care of ourselves and um, I've had sort of a very sort of visceral experience of that when I was at the foreign office. I was a human rights advisor to the foreign office here in London um, advising on any, Brit- or any human rights issues affecting British nationals detained overseas um, and I had a case where a hunger striker died on my watch and that was a very difficult case to deal with um, and we were very fortunate because we had a counsellor. At the Foreign Office who we could go to to talk to about these issues. So having that kind of separate person there who you can talk to and, and manage that sort of stress I think is, is really helpful A sort as of a professional there. Um, doesn't kind of quite attend to the workload issue but more about the nature of the work that we do that it is so it, it, it is very palpable and very profound. So those would be my points I think.
0: Thank you so much. Um, thank you all of you to responding so well and so elegantly, eloquently um, to my particular questions in regards to the moderator session. I want to pivot now to the questions posed in the chat box. I do believe we likely, um, it's possible we will get through all of these though it is, Also possible that uh, we won't get to all of these, in which case I might ask uh, our gracious panelists to respond to a few of them individually. But I'm gonna start with those that are posed to um, all panelists for the benefit of uh, the audience. And I know Elena Overstreet, your question actually is a nice segue from the previous question and also was the the one question I didn't get to in the moderator session. So I wanna go ahead and pull apart or, or pull on that. So Elena asks if any of you have families um, and if that's the case, was it difficult to get hired or uh, balance the travel with your family obligations? And I know Awana and Tina in particular are going to want to respond to this um, and how to balance in particular that dynamic, right? Being a parent as well as being a professional Um, and particularly Elena is asking in the case of young women who are just starting families. So, I don't know, Tina, you wanna start?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I have not had a problem. Um, I never felt that I was not hired or my manager um, had a second thought uh, because I had a family. I mean, I I did not have family when I started, (laughs) so, um, but um, uh, it is difficult. It's still difficult. It has always been difficult for me um I planned my pregnancy according to the big deadlines that I have and it, it sounds terrible probably but uh, I had to um uh and nobody asked me to do so I mean I need to make it clear it's that's like it was what I believed in that this was very important um as important as my family planning and I had somehow to find a balance between the two Um, and my son was three weeks old when I had to um, go to the US for a week long, very important trip to discuss strategic partnership agreement between Georgia and the United States. This was like historic um, for my country, for its national security and development and prosperity and I had to do it and I know it was a big sacrifice, but I believe that I was doing it for my son and for others um, in my country. Um, so yes, this is, this is hard. Um, for me, balance is never finding a middle ground, honestly. It's, it's not that. Um, I spend more time on work when work requires more time and I try to, spend more time with my family when um, when they need me most um, i i have extremely good support from my husband um, from my mother um, who takes care of my son uh, when i travel and it's um it's not only travel it's a case preparation um which is um very stressful and requires a lot of work um, as my colleagues here um, can confirm and um, trials sometimes last for days and weeks even and when um, I mean most times I had to travel to another capital for trial um, because of where the court is located. Um, and during this time, you don't really, I mean, I hardly have time to even talk to your family. Um, and, but I, I try to discipline myself. I, every morning, I talk to my son. We do homework together uh, by Skype. <laughs> so I'm there. We talk. Um, he needs time with me to talk and, share his day and his emotions um so i i give him this time um, whatever happens uh but i also know that when i'm so busy my family is trying to protect me and uh, they are not very honest to me about like sharing their concerns and worries and uh, if someone feels not very well i mean they protect me from uh, giving additional worry um uh, so it's uh, it's it's that type of um collaboration <laughs> uh, and support moral and um physical even sometimes because sometimes I need uh, uh, sleep um uh, uh and I mean my husband would not hesitate and actually would um would um, initiate to go and make dinner for me. Um, so it's, it's uh, we understand, we talked about this from the very beginning. He knew me um, when I was already in the profession. Um, and uh, we, we, we understand each other, we try to support each other, but you know, it's always hard. You want to be with your child. It's not that your child will not be taken care of if you are not there it's not about that you want it you need it um and um it's 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 difficult but somehow um technology helps the communication is easier um compared to what was 20 years ago when i was uh uh, for instance an exchange high school student (laughs) and my parents could call me only once a month (laughs) um so that's um we are creative and I, I want to mention one particular thing. In my case, um, the school and kindergarten helped us a lot because apparently my, cha- my son complained to the kindergarten teacher about me traveling a lot and being gone for weeks. Um, and instead of complaining back to me, the kindergarten teacher told me that Tina, you are doing very important things for yourself and for, for the cause. So never feel sorry about not being here. And she just asked me if I could share with her, her where I was, when I was gone and which country. And she would mention this with my son and his friends in a way that made my son proud um, that I was doing something important um, and interesting and exciting. So um, I I am thankful to her and um, to others um, in the kindergarten and in the school that my, my son goes because they've been supportive. And I think we should support each other in that. And we should understand that it's not easy for anyone um, so that's, um, that's important. Thank you
0: so much. Um, and I believe Vicky, you also have, uh, the challenge of, of navigating the waters between parenthood and professionalism. Is that correct? No, not? No, all. I have no children that I know
3: of, but maybe there are a few.
0: No, I don't have. No. No, that's Awana. Awana, you have a family. Is that correct? So do you want to speak? Exactly. Sorry about that. We have forty. 40- <laughs> minutes I
4: believe so we'll kind of move to other questions too but I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to speak of course I I just want to say that I totally relate to what Tina was saying and uh, I give even got a little bit emotional about it because even uh, the, the story about the kindergarten I totally recognize that <laughs> And uh, if uh, I should add something, is that um, it's exactly this: you need to uh, explain to your entourage, to your family, to your friends, to your partner, to uh, to the, all the persons that you are interacting. Why is this is this so complex and so difficult? And I'm sure everyone uh, will be there to support you and to uh, to help you. Uh, um, as uh, for each thing um, we we talk about earlier, um, support uh, being uh, with other people, um, it's a it's a special let's say uh, profession, and uh, one can only be successful uh, uh, by being. Uh, <laughs> Um, in a team, in a multi, multi oh, how can I say this? Multi, um, when you have m- more professionals uh, helping you to, to achieve your goals, finally. And um, you can also try to see your professional project like a family project if your partner and your family agree to that. So think about it from this perspective also, it doesn't have to be only Um, professional oriented, you can mix both of them, and as Tina uh, very well said, uh, balance is not uh, perfect balance, uh, depending on the momentum, depending on specific circumstances, uh, mission or not mission, uh, I know, um, uh, private or public, because there also are uh, specific uh, circumstances, you can decide uh, where you want to uh, uh, to, to, learn, uh, to to take your uh, your family project, <laughs> but uh, yes, you we need help in this uh, in this profession a lot of help.
0: <laughs> Thank you, um, and I'm going to start our questions to um, let's see individual panelists, I believe, um, and I appreciate again, we have a lot of questions and so panelists, if you want to respond in writing uh, to some of the questions posed, that would be beneficial too, um, although I know it's kind of hard to do that while also uh, speaking. Um, but um, let's see, I believe this is uh, directed towards uh, Vicki and it's uh, about your preference to either practice law, or to work in academia? Because I know Claudia mentioned that you did it, you worked in academia and then you pivoted off to practice and you might be returning. Uh, but Vicki, this one's specifically to you as to whether or not you prefer um, practicing law or working in academia and why.
3: So I,
0: I sort of call myself,
3: or I think of myself as a bit of a, a academic, which is sort of somewhere between a pra- practitioner and an academic. I have dipped my feet into the world of academia in that um, just after I left the foreign office I taught the international human rights law course at Surrey University for three years um, and also and thereafter immediately thereafter I went to McGill um, and did a fellowship in residence at the Centre for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism where I did some um, research so I've kind of dipped my dipped my foot in, in the water of academia um, but never been a full-time academic so I kind of Sit somewhere between the two. Um, I, I, I like them. I like them both, and I like the kind of the, the, the broad sort of re- experience that you get from being a practitioner, but also kind of having the academic sort of bent side as well. So um, I think I think it they can work together quite quite well. Actually, you can sort of do a bit of guest lecturing here and there, or you can do sort of dip with and there. So yeah, it works for me. I think.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I think, let's see, some of our questions are in specific regards to you uh, different experience, so I'm going to kind of go down here to uh, Gracie Watson's question in regards to where you get your law degree, right? So. Um, the question is to all panelists, although not everyone has to answer it, but do you see an advantage to having an American law degree? Uh, of course that's that's different an American law degree or um, or versus
2: a degree from somewhere abroad? Um, I can take this one to begin with. Um, in the field of law that I practice in, which is, as I said, public international law and investment treaty arbitration, there is certainly a preference for common law educated lawyers. Uh, I say this because, as I mentioned, I'm Spanish, so I have a, a civil law degree, although now I'm transitioning to a common law degree as well. Um, but there is certainly an advantage there. And the training that you get at U.S. universities is extremely good. Um, however, <laughs> they do come at a cost. So I don't Side of the traditional big U.S. firms, and if you're thinking potentially working in Europe, for instance, then a U.K. degree might actually work better in your favor because it's going to come with a much less hefty price tag. And at the same time, it's also going to open certain doors. So I would say it certainly depends on where you'd like ideally to practice, but generally a common law um, degree will, will serve you very well, I would say.
1: Um, for for a second, I just really need to, um, to say this, that I agree, uh, Claudia, that's very important. Me too, I'm coming from civil law country, but in international law, it's very important to have good understanding of common law system. Um, and um, yes, I've, I did my LLM in the US, uh, and I know us law schools and i studied also in law school in 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 uk so i can compare and the practical i know that many of you probably are not happy with the practical skills and knowledge you receive at the law school but it's the best probably you can get in any law school um so it's uh, which country you choose it's really up to you and i know there are a lot of factors um uh, that play in the decision making but Keep in mind that common law system is really helpful if you want to pursue international um, career.
0: OK, excellent. And um, is there any other, uh, Vicky, Noona, do you want to add to that or can we go to that to another question, which I think is related. So I guess I'll ask it. And then if you want to elaborate on both of them, uh, Jordan Bailey is asking specifically about international business. And I see this is related, meaning um, do you have any advice for individuals who are wanting to work in that particular realm um, and what opportunities might be available to those who are looking at international business? And I would kind of tie to that, whether or not a law degree might be necessary in that realm.
1: Um, Let me, let me volunteer here. Um, Yeah. International, I mean, um, I was not particularly interested in international business but um, I had I, I realized that in my work I did need um, several times the knowledge and understanding of international business law um, and um, I'm, I'm not like the best person to advise you on the career path but what I understand is that um, a law degree will definitely help you because of the skills that legal education gives you on the one hand and on the other they do need um uh someone with uh, with um knowledge of law uh, the concern there is that i mean when you work for multinational companies um and you will you have a lots of um opportunities there um you it's it's a it's It's a license, right? I mean, where you can practice law. And for instance, if you can practice law in the US and you work in another country outside the US, um, then it's like, how helpful is your license and your your knowledge as well? Um, So if you want to build your career in international business, I think you should keep in mind when you choose the classes in a law school. And of course, contracts towards transactions companies, that's like foundation basics that you need to know. But at the same time, at some point uh, uh, later in your law school years, take comparative laws, take the classes that gives you um, understanding of how other systems work. And um, uh, I think someone mentioned here languages. I mean, make sure that you speak. It is it is very good in public international law to speak a foreign language, but we joke that broken English is the language of public international law. So it's okay with English and you are native speakers, most of you probably, that's fine. But if you go to business, it's important that, that you speak another language uh, because for, for for more private uh, entity relationships, it's extremely helpful that you can communicate in the language that these people speak. Uh, And unfortunately, even though a lot of people speak English, you cannot assume that uh, all of them do. (laughs) So that's not the fact. Um, So, I mean, that's my take on on the career in international business law. Okay, wonderful. Um, I have one
0: very... You, Tina, and since your your mic, or since you were kind of up, I'll kind of pose it to you because, as Pat mentions, this uh, chat box is going to go away after the panel um, ends, and it'll go into oblivion. So I want to make sure that we don't do that. Um, so this particular question, and perhaps you can uh, connect with this particular. Um, audience member offline, because I think like it's a pretty large answer. Um, but she wants to know about when you brought Russia to the ICJ, um, on what grounds you did so, right? So uh, specifically using domestic uh, Russian law, incentivizing them to come to court, uh, and if you could expand upon that, um, again, in, in the amount of time that we have available.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will be very brief. Uh, so um, no, we could not and we did not use Russian law. Um, to do that. Um, So um, there are a few grounds for bringing a state um, uh, at the International Court of Justice. Um, One is that some states recognize the jurisdiction of ICJ in all cases, Uh, so what they ratify the UN charter and recognize the jurisdiction very clearly, directly, specifically. So no implied uh, um, recognition of jurisdiction. Unfortunately, big and powerful states don't do that, um, including uh, Soviet Union, and then Russia continued um, to do the same. Um, Another ground is that states agree, that, okay, there's a dispute between two of us and we go to the ICJ, let ICJ decide. Third ground is and it was impossible with Russia of course and uh, third ground is that you find a treaty um, that has um, a so-called compromissory clause which says that if there is a disagreement on the interpretation or application of this treaty, the states the, the matter can be decided by the, by the ICJ and that was the uh, only choice for us, but we had to find a treaty relevant to our situation. So there is this international covenant on the con- convention on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. This convention was um, drafted um, to, to address the, and the yeah, apartheid in, in South Africa, and just it's focused heavily on racial discrimination, but, It defines racial discrimination as something including uh, discrimination based on ethnicity or nationality, Uh, I mean, not citizenship. So, 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 um, so that's like what we used um, this convention. I mean, Russia, Soviet Union ratified because they never thought that it could ever be used against them. Um, and uh, when Soviet Union collapsed, Russia did not put the reservation on this uh, clause, again, hoping that this was not something they they, they could be uh, sued for. Uh, so that, and we use this convention, but it had, it, it was never applied before, and there was a lot of, concern about the procedures uh, that we need to do before seizing the courts. So it's a a long and complicated matter, but um, the short answer is that we use the international covenant um, and uh, um, not the Russian law.
0: Thank you um, so much, Tina, and thank you to uh, the rest of our panelists. Again, I know it's very late where you are. um, Now past midnight, I believe, for Tina. So thank you all for participating. Thank you for your insight. Uh, Thank you, Pat, and to the Tennessee World Affairs Council for hosting this event. Thank you to our program sponsors and to all in the audience for taking your time out to learn more. Uh, We appreciate you. We appreciate your curiosity. and continued engagement, and hope that you will take the pieces of advice uh, offered here and uh, go forward and succeed in your chosen paths. Thank you all very much, and uh, we will see you soon. Bye bye. Thank you.
2: Thank you, everyone. Bye bye. Right. Thank you.